reading the book of Revelation together. While we find ourselves making our way there to chapter 13, just a reminder on Sunday nights we go through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and tonight we'll be studying, moving into the New Testament and uh, having finished the Old Testament and move into the Gospel according to John. We've already done the other three Gospels periodically in, uh, in our way through the Old Testament. And so now as we head into the New Testament, we'll start in John this evening, 6 o'clock. Each of you are invited. Revelation chapter 13, verse 11. And John writes, Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. And he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. And he performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads, and that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark of the name uh, or the name of the beast, or the number of his name. And here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. His number is 666. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much, as always, for your word. We are grateful not only for it, but we're grateful as well that we need never turn to it just on our own. Uh, without a teacher, without your Holy Spirit to open it up to us, without you to commune with and to talk things over in our hearts with as we read it and as we study it. We pray that you would help your word, Lord, um, not to come forth this morning in word only, but in the demonstration of your Spirit and in power, that it would be the living thing that it is, Lord, in each one of our lives as we Study it now as a part of our relationship with you. Bless us as we do, we pray, in the way that only you can. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Chapters 12 and 13, as we've mentioned for a number of weeks now, introduce us to seven very, very significant personages uh, that are important for us to understand uh, in order to be able to understand the book of Revelation and what it is that's happening within this book. And you re might remember that uh, in chapter 12, we examined the fifth of those personages, uh, the dragon, Satan himself, and then last week in the first portion of chapter 13, the sixth of those personages, the beast or the Antichrist. And uh, it's no accident that these, uh, as we come here to the final of the seven and studying uh, the uh, false prophet, and it's really no accident that the three of these are united to make up the final three of the seven, united in the passage in this way, because 
uh, throughout the tribulation period, both uh, Satan and the Antichrist and the false prophet will constitute a demonic trinity that will be in operation. And uh, Satan is uh, nothing else if he is not a great counterfeiter, and he is a great counterfeiter. The Holy Trinity of the Godhead is made up of three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All of them, one God manifested in three persons. And Jesus, the Son of God, is always making much of the Father. The Holy Spirit is always then making much uh, of, of Jesus. The Father is always glorifying the Son. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye Him. And there's this beautiful unity and other-centeredness within, uh, within the Godhead. And uh, in this unholy uh, trinity, just as Jesus received authority from the Father, uh, in his ministry, and then he manifests uh, the Father. So the Antichrist will receive his power from the devil. He will uh, draw attention to him as the Holy Spirit glorifies Jesus. So the fa false prophet's focus will be to glorify the Antichrist. I think that typically the average person, Christian, non-Christian, uh, knows at least a little bit about the Antichrist. They at least recognize his name and that uh, he's not a good person. And, uh, but even for Christians, we can be a little less familiar with this one that is known as the false prophet. And so this morning, John, uh, in this passage, uh, makes us aware of his uh, work in that tribulation period. You notice in verse 11 that he will be another beast who comes up out of the earth. And so uh, he is just like the Antichrist, is going to be a man. He will rise up out of the mass of humanity and take his uh, diabolical place in, in human history. He's referred to as another beast, indicating that he is going to be just as destructive, just as evil as the Antichrist. And, uh, and he's referred to as the, another beast in order di to differentiate him uh, from the Antichrist, who is also referred to uh, as the beast. Uh, that is the title that is given to the Antichrist most of the time in the Scriptures. Now, as we move uh, through the book of Revelation, and maybe so that people aren't confused about the Antichrist and the false prophet, both of them having, uh, being referred to as the beast, for the remainder of the book of, of Revelation, uh, the false prophet will be referred to by exactly that title, by the false, uh, as the false prophet. He will be a deceiver, we're told, in verses 11 through uh, 15. He's going to be a deceiver like no other deceiver that the world has ever known. And there have been lots of deceivers, uh, whether on... Uh, 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 used car lots or on international levels or what it might be. I'm not slamming all people that sell cars, uh, but you know, it's a, um, you have about as bad a reputation as pastors do, so uh, it's, we're forced to live with it. You notice that he's described as having two horns like a lamb and speaking like a dragon there in verse 11. So, like a lamb, his outward appearance is going to be one of being gentle, of being harmless. Uh, but when he opens his mouth to speak, the message that will come from his mouth will be from the dragon. It will be from Satan. He will be a mouthpiece for Satan 
uh, in the world during that tribulation period. It's interesting to realize that this is the only place in the Revelation where uh, a lamb does not refer uh, to Jesus. Again, Satan is a counterfeiter, and he always takes something of what belongs to God, and then he takes on something of the nature of Jesus in order uh, to legitimize what he's about, in order to get people to lower their guard and, and to trust him in some way, a trust that he's unworthy of, and then he uses it for his evil purposes. Paul tells us that in effect Satan is never more dangerous than when he comes as an angel of light, as he wrote to the church in Corinth, and no wonder for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light, and therefore it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness whose end will be according to their works. You remember what Jesus said about false prophets, uh, of whom this guy is going to be chief, in his Sermon on the Mount, uh, Matthew chapter 7, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You'll know them by uh, their fruits. And so he says specifically, uh, when you have somebody that's saying, uh, uh, claiming to speak for God or claiming to speak truth in, in any regard, don't give any weight to what they look like. Uh, don't give any weight to, uh, to judging them in terms of how eloquent or well-spoken they are or mesmerizing they might be as a speaker, but judge them by their fruits. Judge them by uh, what they say, not how they say it, and then the life that they live. Of course, presently, I think we see in our postmodern culture moving in exactly the opposite direction uh, of all of this. And so you have the distrust today, certainly very strong in our country, very strong in the Western uh, world, this distrust of reason, uh, the distrust of rational thought, uh, the distrust of absolutes, and most especially when those absolutes are moral or spiritual. And so uh, to give very little weight to the content. Uh, of what a person says today as opposed to how they say it. And then even more importantly, how it makes me feel and how it affects me uh, emotionally. And this whole uh, uh, tidal wave of, of kind of a post-rational uh, thinking that is going on in the West, in our, our country, it's so prevalent today. It's been prevalent for years now. And, uh, and growing for years that one man communicated his frustration with the words, how do you connect with a generation that hears with its eyes and thinks with its feelings? And so all of this, not only the abandonment of biblical principles, but any idea of absolutes at, at all as a setup for the Antichrist and a setup for the false prophet uh, who is coming. There simply cannot be an easier group in the world uh, to deceive than one who chooses to elevate their emotions above reason in determining what is true, 
in determining what is safe to believe and follow, or worse yet, to believe something is true simply because I believe it's true, or because it is true to me. And we used to laugh in the old days when I was growing up at, the, at people that were described as being so open-minded that all of their brains have fallen out. But it now marks a very significant portion of the population uh, of the entire world. How else do you explain transgenderism today in the face of the Bible? Male and female created he them. Chromosomes don't lie in the face of nature, in the face of science. And how else do you explain a man on the Penn women's swimming team being nominated for the NCAA Woman of the Year Award? And I, I'm hopeful, I'm, uh, I'm not quite confident, but I'm hopeful that all of this is going to be pushed back on in our culture, but uh, that uh, will, uh, if it does happen, it's just going to be a reprieve. And you remove the Holy Spirit at the time of the uh, tribulation period, his influence through the church during, uh, in the world, and I think all bets are off in terms of what it is that people are going to be willing to believe. Additionally, uh, the false prophet is going to be a master of deception. He's going to speak like a dragon, uh, we're told. He's going to speak like Satan. Now, in this, when we think about the false prophet speaking like a dragon, it doesn't necessarily mean that he's going to uh, come on like a wrecking ball uh, when he communicates. Uh, at least he won't initially. But I think he's going to operate, and certainly initially, very, very much like the devil did uh, in the Garden of Eden when he came to Eve and uh, he came to her very, very subtly, very quietly, very calmly. And then most of all, as we saw last week, he came telling her exactly what she wanted to hear. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the uh, Lord God had made, speaking of Satan. And that word subtle, interestingly, it means subtle, it means sly, it means crafty, but it also means sensible. Uh, how dangerous uh, is the devil when he comes across as, as sensible? And everything that the false prophet is going to say will seem perfectly sound, perfectly sensible to anyone who doesn't want to believe there's a God uh, to whom we will all one day uh, give an account, to someone who will uh, like the message that uh, Satan spoke to Eve where he says to her, in effect, don't worry, as we saw last week, don't worry about those restrictive commandments of God. They're just holding you back from the most important thing in life, and that is your happiness, the gratification of your physical appetites. And I've come now to lead you into a life, the life that you've always dreamed of. So whether he comes as a wrecking ball or as cool, calm, and collected, the results are 
uh, disastrous nonetheless. You notice in verse 13, a third way that the false prophet will deceive the world will be by performing great signs and uh, miracles. And so we're told in verse 13, including the ability to bring fire down from heaven in the sight of mankind. And uh, so maybe kind of with that communicating his authority over nature, his authority uh, over the heavens, we know that the, false, uh, that the two witnesses, Elijah and then perhaps Moses, that this is one of the signs and wonders that they will be performing at that time. And so maybe he will do that in order to blunt the, the effectiveness of the supernatural to draw people to the true message that, uh, that they uh, will, be, uh, will be speaking uh, one day. Following what appears to be an attempt upon the life uh, of the Antichrist, verses 14 and 15, uh, this assassination attempt during the tribulation, an attempt that he's going to survive, the false prophet is going to make an image of the Antichrist, and then he's going to give breath to the image so it has the ability to speak. So there's going to be some kind of an image made of the Antichrist after he survives this, uh, this particular uh, assassination attempt. Uh, this will be created under the instruction of the, the false prophet. And um, I'm inclined to believe that it's going to be set up in the Holy of Holies of the rebuilt temple uh, that he is going to defile when the Antichrist goes in at the midterm of, of the tribulation period, walks into the Holy of Holies, sits down and declares himself to be God and demands to be worshiped as God. And so uh, this image is going to then be given breath by, uh, to the image of the beast by this false prophet so it has the ability uh, to speak. So uh, this is uh, uh, some kind of a supernatural thing that occurs for probably the worship of the Antichrist there uh, at the temple, even when he's physically not there. Now, the importance of this image of, of the Antichrist and the worship of him during the tribulation period, it must be very, very significant because it's mentioned over and over and over again uh, in describing the world and kind of the spiritual condition of the world during the tribulation period. Uh, seven more times it's going to be mentioned in the remainder of the book of Revelation. Now, what this giving breath to the image uh, of the Antichrist means exactly, uh, that's not entirely uh, clear to me. Uh, whether God uh, uh, grants the false prophet the ability to do so, whether this is going to be a clone of the Antichrist in some way, uh, who's going to be then possessed by a demon spirit, or whether it's going to be something else. But whatever this image is that he's able to give breath uh, to here, it's going to absolutely floor the world. And it's going to so wow them that it's going to be instrumental in uh, their turning uh, their worship to the Antichrist. We're told in verse 12 and 14 that by these kind of miracles, he's going to deceive the entire world into worshiping uh, the Antichrist. And all of this teaches us a very important lesson as 
uh, Christians as it relates to signs and wonders uh, and to miracles. All of those things are legitimate things that God uh, does. And, uh, and they're all legitimate things that God uses for His glory. That he uses them for His purpose in human history. And He even does these kind of things today. But they can also be hijacked uh, by the devil in order to deceive people. Whenever somebody gets up and says, Thus saith the Lord, uh, my, uh, I don't drop my guard as a Christian and say, oh, now, whatever they say, as long as they preface it that way, I'm going to believe it. Now, as Christians, our work is just starting to now test what it is that they say. In the same way, in terms of uh, a sign or a wonder or a miracle, we're not to automatically believe that God must be behind that miracle. And that requires some uh, discipline on our part that requires some uh, uh, restraint on our part because supernatural things wow us. And so, but to remember that uh, the devil has to a limit, nothing like what God has, but he does have uh, the power to do these kind of things uh, within the will of God. And, um, and he so there is a such thing as a cultic power that operates within, uh, within the world. You think about the Old Testament, where well, number one, you have an example of this uh, occultic power and operation right here as it's described in terms of how it will operate during the tribulation period. We remember when uh, Moses and Aaron went before Pharaoh in the book of Exodus to secure uh, on God's behalf uh, the release of the children of Israel from their bondage in Egypt. And there were those series of ten plagues that God brought upon Egypt in order to secure their release. Well, in two of the miracles that, uh, that were done as a demonstration of the fact that uh, Moses and Aaron had come, uh, were messengers of God, uh, in throwing down, uh, Aaron throwing his staff down, and then it turning into a snake, then also duplicating the miracle of turning the waters, the Nile and other waters into blood. These magicians of Pharaoh were, order, were able to imitate uh, those two miracles. They weren't of, uh, of God, these two, uh, these magicians, but their power was occultic. And so uh, our protection related to all of this is to number one, when someone says, thus saith the Lord, or when someone uh, does a miracle, is to ask ourselves immediately, uh, does this contradict uh, it, it, the teaching of the Bible in any way? And if it does, then we reject it as not being of God. God will never contradict Himself. The second thing we do is by noticing uh, who and what the person that performs the miracle points us to as a result of the miracle. So the miracle gets our attention. And then now having got our attention, who now does this person point us to? And if they point us to anyone other than uh, God Himself, uh, 
anything or anyone other than God, then the miracle is to be rejected. If the miracle is used to draw me into the worship of anything or anyone else but God, it's to be rejected. And that's why under the law of Moses, uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 13, when a miracle was done, the religious leaders didn't just say, well, God's the only one that can do miracles, and uh, they didn't declare it to be a miracle until they heard the message that was attached to the miracle and uh, to see whether it led into the worship of God or whether it led to the worship of someone other than God. And if it did so, it was to be exposed then of, as not being of God. This kind of warning fairly fills the New Testament. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 21, we're told to test all things and to hold fast to that which is uh, good. Uh, in 1 John chapter 4, verse 1, John, the same author of the book of Revelation, he said, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Uh, Jesus warned of this coming deception that the Antichrist is going to bring into the world, the false prophet as well. He pointedly uh, uh, warned uh, related to the deception on the basis of, of miracles that's going to occur. Matthew chapter 24, verse 24, for false, prof false Christs and false prophets will arise and show great signs and wonders so as to, to deceive if possible, even the elect, see, I have told you beforehand. Uh, elsewhere, Jesus indicates that miracles uh, are not, uh, not, a, uh, not something that we can confidently put our uh, trust in uh, as an evidence uh, that God is at work when he declared in close, closing his uh, Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, verse 22. He said, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. The Apostle Paul, speaking of this very same thing, speaking of the Antichrist and, and the future false prophet as well, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9, the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders. Now, with this, the Satan and the Antichrist and also uh, the false prophet, they will... Uh, immediately move uh, once they've accomplished uh, their uh, deceiving of the entire world, they will then very quickly move to exerting their power over the entire world, as we see in the latter part of verse 15 through verse 18. And they will begin to exert their power following their deception in three stages. You notice in verse 15, first by killing anyone who refuses to worship the image of the beast. And so trust in the Antichrist and in the false prophet is going to be gained uh, by means of propaganda, by means of, of indoctrination, deception. There are going to be these gentle, soothing words. And then 
After that's been secured, there'll be the uh, exercise of supernatural power. And, uh, and all of the, uh, the deception, the loyalty that people show to these two, to the devil himself, it's going to be repaid at some point with this demand of absolute obedience under the threat of death. And all of this is exactly as Jesus described uh, the devil to be. In John chapter 8, verse 44, he said to the Jewish religious leaders, you are of your father the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. And he, when he speaks a lie, uh, he, uh, he speaks from his own resources. He doesn't have to read a book online. He knows how to lie, for he is a liar and the father uh, uh, of it. And so how much simpler life would be if we took Jesus' uh, uh, word for these kind uh, of things. Now, of course, the tribulation saints, those who become Christians during the tribulation period, they will refuse uh, to worship uh, the beast, and so they're going to be executed as enemies of the state, as traitors to uh, society, and not all of the tribulation saints are going to be martyred. Uh, some of them will survive all the way until the end of the tribulation period and, and Jesus' uh, second coming. But what it will mean at this point is that survival for tribulation saints is going to mean a life on the run uh, for the remainder of the tribulation period. You notice in verse 16 that the, uh, with the exertion of this power, uh, that second, uh, it's going to be exerted by requiring that all people, no matter who they are, no matter what their rank in society, whether the, uh, any, uh, the entirety of society, to receive a mark on either their right hand or their forehead. This mark will be an outward expression on the part of an individual human being of their loyalty to the Antichrist. It'll speak of their worship of the Antichrist. Now, the choosing of the right hand or the forehead uh, appears to be because they're conspicuous. It's an easy way to show the identification in order for buying and selling as, as is going to be uh, required. Probably, I would guess, that the right hand is going to be uh, the predominant choice of people during the tribulation period because of the ease with which it can be shown. But not everybody has a right hand. And so, uh, but everybody has a forehead. And, and so uh, you'll have the option of, of the head as well uh, in, in order for uh, all of this uh, to occur. That's where it's going to be placed. So all of this, this mark of the beast that's going to be, uh, uh, occur, going to be universally received by non-Christians and is going to be universally rejected by uh, tribulation saints. As we're going to see, uh, God willing, next week in chapter 14, that no one will take this uh, mark of the beast uh, 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 without knowing exactly what it is. So God allows the, the devil to deceive uh, uh, to a point, but he will not allow people to be deceived into thinking uh, uh, that, 
that this is a, a, an incidental thing that they're doing in taking the mark of the beast. As we'll see that uh, the entire world is divinely warned that to take that mark is to uh, determine a person's uh, eternal, uh, eternal existence in, uh, in Gehenna. The word mark, as it's used here in, in the Greek, it, uh, it can have several meanings, and they all mean the same thing. They mean a mark. It can be an engraving, an impression, a, uh, a mark, or a symbol. You notice third, uh, that this power is going to be exerted by forbidding, verse 17, uh, anyone the ability to buy or sell if they don't have the mark of the Antichrist, if they don't have uh, his name or the number of his name. So here we see uh, we've just come out of COVID. We watched uh, uh, the governments of the world, uh, some uh, far worse than even our government. I was just shocked at what Australia did. Uh, I mean, uh, where's uh, Dundee? Where are all the, I mean, what, the, what they did to buckle those people under. But even in, in, in the United States of America, how people's jobs were held over their heads. Uh, you're either going to get this thing, this vaccine, uh, or you're going to lose that, that job. And it, and they know that's a very, very powerful means of forcing people into compliance. I'm not saying that our president or anybody present is, is the, the Antichrist or anything like that, but we got a foretaste of, of how powerful that pressure uh, can, uh, can be. And it will be even more so in that time. There will be the forbidding of anyone to buy or sell if they don't have the mark uh, of the Antichrist. And they'll bring that, that pressure uh, uh, upon the population of the world. And so to refuse the mark will mean that even if you're able as a Christian, tribulation saint, to escape martyrdom for not worshiping uh, the image of the beast, now again you're forced to live on the run in order to escape the authorities now that are tasked to uh, find you and to uh, eliminate you. Uh, you're going to have, a person will have in the world at that time no ability to sell. So you're going to, a person will be cut out of the world economy by virtue of the fact that they won't be able to earn money uh, in any way. And then on top of that, there's not going to be the ability to buy, no ability to buy food or clothing or shelter, even if you have money, because a mark is going to be required to do that. If you've ever been on the other side of the world and uh, gone to uh, an ATM or something in order to withdraw some cash in the local currency, and then to find out that your cards have been frozen uh, or that they're being rejected, uh, you have just a little bit of a taste for uh, the panic that is going to happen in all of that. Because here you are on the other side of the world, you now have no money for food. You have no money for water. You have no money for uh, a room uh, in order to rent for, uh, for a night. How am I going to eat? And, 
and then uh, with the additional reality during the tribulation period uh, of knowing that unlike that happening on the other side of the world as a tourist, where that is uh, quickly cleared up in a day or so with a couple of phone calls, during the tribulation period, it will not get cleared up. That will become uh, the immediate condition uh, of the entire uh, world. And, uh, and the entire population of the world is going to be on board with a false prophet on this. In other words, not only will you have uh, kind of government officials and uh, the very significant kind of governmental authority and apparatuses that the Antichrist will have uh, at his disposal in enforcing all of this, but you will not find uh, benevolent hearts among the population uh, of the world. Because again, a person will be viewed as an enemy of the state who refuses to take the mark, whether on their right hand or uh, on their, uh, their forehead. Now, it's very important to understand that taking the mark of the beast is an expression of loyalty to the Antichrist, of worship uh, of the Antichrist, that the, but that the, the, um, the mark of the beast is not necessarily a means of personal identification. Uh, it doesn't mean that everybody is going to get their own individual mark that identifies them uh, individually. Everyone has their own number. It doesn't necessarily uh, even involve a cashless society uh, or biometrics where a computer microchip is placed under the skin, it's scanned, and then the money's going to be automatically withdrawn from uh, our accounts. It's fine to speculate related to those things, and it can even be sanctified uh, speculation, and maybe those things are all going to happen, as long as we realize that the Bible, all it tells us about this mark for sure is that it will be a mark of personal identification with the Antichrist. A and uh, and our lo uh, their loyalty to him, their worship of him, and as long as we uh, also realize that it may just be a mark that uh, people show in order to buy and sell uh, just as we do uh, today. Now, at the end of verse 17, it appears that the mark of the beast incorporates the name of the beast or uh, the uh, number of his name in some way. So uh, nobody knows quite what this is about and uh, how that's going to happen, but we're, we're told that much, and then we're given additional wisdom concerning all of this in verse 18. The number of the beast will be 666. And so, and here we're given the additional insight that this number refers to, uh, is referred to here as the number of a man. That might refer to the fact that in the original creation, man was created uh, on the sixth day. Uh, seven biblically is considered to be the number of perfection or the number of completeness. Uh, and here is an indication with the sixes that man falls short of that perfection. It may mean that the Antichrist 
is uh, three times greater or more powerful than the greatest man in history by virtue of the three sixes, but the reminder that he is only a man. And so letters in the Greek alphabet, letters in the Hebrew alphabet, uh, they do have numerical equivalents, and so it's believed that when the Antichrist is revealed, uh, the numerical equivalent of his name uh, will be uh, 666. Now, all of this has produced a, become a cottage industry for some Christians uh, to take guesses at uh, kind of uh, adding up the numerical equivalents of different people's names and, and that this is in order to identify for the rest of us who has the potential to be the Antichrist. And so they come up, uh, everyone from Caesar Nero uh, all the way to Kissinger. And uh, if Kissinger's the Antichrist, uh, he better get a move on. I saw him on television uh, uh, just a couple of weeks ago and talking about the situation in the Ukraine and um, uh, he'd have to get uh, utmost respect for him in, in many respects. But uh, the silliness of, of attaching these names to whoever. Uh, you let some of these people loose, and, uh, and if they knew your name fully, half of us would qualify in this room uh, as the future Antichrist and, uh, if, if, if they had their way. I, I'm perfectly uh, pretty sure that this wisdom that he gives here in verse uh, 18 uh, concerning the uh, identity of the Antichrist is not so much that we as Christians uh, presently uh, who will uh, never see the Antichrist in this earth, we're going to be raptured prior to that, that uh, this hasn't been supplied to us in order that we might take pot shots at uh, different people uh, or, uh, or that we might be able to get the big scoop and pre preemptively reveal the Antichrist to, uh, to the world. Um, I, I, I don't think it's been given to us for our amusement as Christians uh, who are not going to be around, but I think it's going to mean a great deal to tribulation saints. And somehow it will be when the Antichrist is revealed, he demands that this mark be taken, and then the tribulation saints look at it and, uh, and realize this is not something I need to, to I don't, that I am to do. And then the numbering of this person's name is going to be a further confirmation to them that they're dealing with the Antichrist and and to refuse to take his mark. We remember that the Bible, including the book of Revelation, it's written to us today, but it is also written to Christians, people who will become Christians during the tribulation period. And uh, believe me, uh, we'll have an interest in the book of Revelation that probably none of us as Christians bring uh, quite to it, certainly concerning uh, chapters 6 through 19, which deal with the actual tribulation itself. And so there you have it. Uh, for some of you, you now know more about the false prophet than you ever wanted to know. Uh, and, uh, but it is all a part of what uh, uh, is declared by John at the beginning of the Revelation, that uh, all of this is included for our blessing as we would read it, as we uh, would, would hear it. And, uh, and in the obeying of the book. And so all of this is going to be invaluable for the tribulation saint during the tribulation, but it's also very valuable for us to know 
uh, uh, history in advance, and also for us as Christians today to see the conditioning of the world, such a rapid conditioning of the world for when this guy, uh, these people come on the scene uh, and then proceed to deceive the world that has no interest in, uh, in uh, uh, believing God or following uh, Him. And so I think uh, with the deception as we see the powerful use of deception on the part of the Antichrist last week, the false prophet this week, and then how they move from deception to this ruthless use of power to now uh, uh, hold on to the people that they have, uh, have deceived. It certainly makes us grateful to be members of God's kingdom in all of its peace and all of its beauty. And, and you see such a stark contrast between the kingdom of darkness, Satan's uh, kingdom, and then the kingdom of God is it's, it's uh, put forth for us uh, here. God never uses deception. Ever. And He never uses deception ever to bring anyone into His kingdom. He never does it. He comes to mankind and He says to us, this is the truth about your condition. And this is the truth about the solution to your sinful condition. And this is the Savior that I have provided uh, to you in the person uh, of my Son. He's completely up front in, in all of, uh, of, of these things. And then He never uses constraint to once we become part of the kingdom of God, He never now uses constraint to force someone uh, uh, to continue to walk with the Lord, to now keep us faithful to Him uh, through fear or under the threat of death. And so here in this kingdom of God, we obey God because we love Him and because uh, our obedience provides us with a way to express our love to this God who has saved us and loves us. And we do all of it willingly, or our worship would be meaning, uh, meaningless uh, to Him or, or to us. And so, uh, and, and all uh, in order that uh, uh, we would obey Him uh, as fully as we desire to, God provides us with the will to do and the power to do of His good pleasure. As I just thought yesterday of our citizenship in this uh, kingdom of God, this family of God, how different it is uh, from the kingdom uh, of darkness and the devil. And in, in the tribulation period, the devil gets to show all of his colors. He has no interest in the good of any human being at all. And as I just thought about that uh, difference, I, uh, Fanny Crosby's hymn came to my mind, Blessed Assurance. Blessed Assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God, born of His Spirit, washed in His blood. Perfect submission, all is at rest. I and my Savior am happy and blessed. 
watching and waiting, looking above, filled with His goodness, lost in His love. This is my story. This is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. And the kingdom of darkness knows nothing of one small pinhead of any of that, but all of that is our daily portion and our eternal portion. And if you have, if you have never trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins uh, today, we're going to be up in front immediately after the service, pastors, men and women, and they would love to pray with you to come out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom uh, of God's glorious light that is found in His Son. And what a privilege it is and what a difference those kingdoms are. And coming into the kingdom of God is free because God has made it free. It's His offer to you uh, to simply uh, be received as a gift into your hands and into your heart today. For all of us in the room today, if you need prayer for anything this morning, they'd love to pray with you and for you as well. Don't take all of your problems of the world that you're carrying back out into the car and continue to worry about them and bear them on your own. The Bible says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. We'd love to pray with you as well. You come forward uh, if you'd like to and receive prayer this morning. And so let's stand together and we'll close in prayer now. Father, we are so happy to be in the truth. And we are so thankful that you are not a God who uses deception or manipulation to draw us into something that we don't even have any idea what we're getting into and then you get us locked into a corner and then you begin to abuse us with your power. We thank you that your kingdom is nothing like that. And yet it produces, Lord, your love, uh, your goodness to us produces an obedience and a loyalty to you that the devil will never ever know from those he deceives and exerts his power uh, over. Thank you for the privilege of being your children. Thank you for the privilege of being a part of your kingdom. Thank you for Jesus who has made all of it possible. And we thank you in his name. In Jesus' name, amen.